Uh, as you notice, the overhead uh, screen here has our title slide for the Gospel of John, and so we are going to get back into the Gospel of John this morning. Can I hear an amen for that, right? Um, I, I didn't know where else to go, uh, but back to John. So uh, I figured no better Sunday than this Sunday uh, than to get back in. It's always one of those uh, funny things during the summertime. I, I kind of hesitate to keep plowing through uh, whatever our book study is on Sunday morning, because I know people are in and out of town, and I hate to have people miss um, kind of what we're uh, kind of all experiencing together through uh, a, a book that we're, we're, we're studying. And so uh, anyway, I think we're, we're, we're all getting back into the groove here after the summer and getting ready for school to start. So I think this is as good a Sunday as any to dive back into our study. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in, in the Gospel of John, John chapter... Anybody remember? Yeah, see, it's been that long. You don't even know. Where are we in? Where are we in John? John 13. Thank you. John chapter 13. Somebody must have put a post-it note in there and said, okay, we're going to hold Ken to this. This is where he stopped. We've got to make sure he goes back here. So yeah, John chapter 13, verse 31. John chapter 13, verse 31. And we're going to look at that through the end of the chapter this morning. Let me read the text. Therefore, when Judas had gone out... Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now, right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, particularly the gospel of John and just how you've used it over the centuries, ever since uh, John penned it by inspiration of your spirit uh, to to bring many uh, to a saving understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And uh, Lord, we uh, are so privileged to have it uh, still preserved in the pages of Scripture to study together. And so I pray that as we dive back into this study, Lord, that you'd help us to get back up to speed in our hearts and our minds, uh, that you'd just pull it all together for us today. And, and uh, we know that uh, you're going to speak to us today and you're going to say some things to us that we need to hear. And so I pray that we'd all be attentive, we'd all be receptive, we'd all be responsive to you today, not to my words but to your words we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered why God doesn't just uh, take us all to heaven the moment that we get saved, the moment we become a Christian? We're just like, boom, rapture, instant rapture, we're gone, right? I mean, that'd be pretty wild, right? Because people hopefully would be disappearing, right? Uh, Every Sunday morning, or we would have lost a bunch of kids last week at Camp Revive. They would have just been gone. And we would have come home and you'd be like, hey, where's my kid? And uh, you'd be like, well, hopefully you wouldn't say that because you'd be in heaven already too, right? But uh, the point is, right, why doesn't God do that? Why don't we just get saved and boom, instant uh, rapture to heaven? Well, the reason is because we are one of his best tools to bring other people to Christ. 
He wants to use us to lead others uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the first step, uh, after maybe praying for uh, your unbelieving family and friends and co-workers and classmates, maybe the first step in, in leading someone to Christ is to let them know that you are in Christ, that you're a Christian. Um, and that's not always the easiest thing to do, right? In our day and age, you don't want to come on too strong and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, just kind of bowl them over. And so sometimes you're like, well, how can I let them know that I'm a Christian? Um, and, and so, um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that you can uh, introduce the fact or, or make it known uh, to an unbeliever that you're a believer. I mean, just walk into the, uh, any Christian bookstore today and you'll find a surplus of Christian paraphernalia, right, that you can purchase uh, for that purpose, right? You can put a, a fish emblem on the back of your car um, or, or if you don't like that, I mean, I like the fish emblem that has the eating the Darwin fish. That's my favorite one. Um, but uh, you can put a fish emblem on your car. Uh, you can, you can uh, slap a bumper sticker, a Christian bumper sticker back there so everybody driving down the road knows, oh, there's a Christian. Uh, you can wear a Christian T-shirts, Christian hats with uh, Christian slogans or sayings. Um, you can wear necklaces or bracelets or rings with, 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 uh, in the shape of sacred things. Um, you can get a mat at the front door of your house that says, you know, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And, and, uh, or you can put, get paintings in your house, you know, with Jesus on a boat in the, in the storm. Or you can get Bible verses, you know, framed and put up in your house and your living room walls. You can get crosses to put up on your mantles. I mean, you can even go so far as putting your Bible on your desk at work. How cool would that be, right? You just kind of have a Bible out there. So anybody who comes in, they kind of see that Bible and it either kind of wigs them out and they're like, okay, uh, this guy. Is weird, or like, hey, what's that, right? And, and that might be a really cool way to, to, to let people know that you're a Christian. Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with any of these things to, to, to kind of put out there that you're a Christian, um, and in fact, they may provide you with some pretty neat opportunities to share Christ with other people. They might notice, hey, I like your shirt, or I like your hat, or hey, that's a cool whatever. I saw your bumper sticker. Hey, what? that's a kind of a pretty necklace. What does that mean? And, and you know, so sometimes that kind of works, and, 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 it's, and it's fun to kind of springboard it off of those things into a talk about the Lord. But, but ultimately, they are merely superficial symbols that, that are really limited in, in helping us be a witness for Christ. Um, even living a good moral life um, or knowing a lot about the Bible or going to church all the time uh, is not the most effective way to, to be a witness to others. Why? Because none of those things really prove or disprove the genuineness of your faith in Christ. Um, Jesus said that there will be many at the last days who, who will say, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? I mean, didn't we, didn't we know a bunch about that? Didn't we memorize all these verses? And, and didn't we serve in the nursery? And didn't we sing in the choir? Didn't even we, we preach messages from behind these pulpits? And he'll say, depart from me, I never what? Knew you. And so there's one quality that distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian, and that is love for other Christians. You can't love other Christians if you're not a Christian, right? And so that really is the, the one thing that kind of sets us apart from the rest of the world. When we love each other, it, it shows the world that we belong to Christ. And, and so the true mark of a Christian is love for other Christians. And, and that's what Jesus was, was teaching his disciples here uh, in this passage, that the best way 
to show unbelievers that you're a Christian is not by loving him or by even loving them. It's by loving fellow believers. Let me say that again. Jesus was saying here that the best way to show unbelievers that you're a Christian is not loving Christ. It's not loving them. It's loving each other. It's loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this was really revolutionary, uh, not just to these disciples, but really uh, by way of of the teaching of God's Word and the progression of revelation uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is one of the most profound truths that Jesus communicated to His disciples um, just just a few hours before He was going to die on the cross. And uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, back in May, we launched into this beloved section of Scripture, which we, we know as the Upper Room Discourse. It goes from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17. And uh, basically, we've already gone through the first 12 chapters uh, of the Gospel of, uh, of John, and it was all about Jesus' public ministry. And now as we are here in chapter 13, all the way through chapter 17, it's more his, his, public, or excuse me, his private ministry. And, and, and really, chapters 1 through 12 covers several years, and chapters 13 to 17, believe it or not, only covers several hours. And so we're going to be in this uh, text, this upper room discourse, probably for several months, but we have to keep in mind that it's really only several hours in the life of Christ. In fact, it's just a few hours in that evening time before he was arrested and, and, and then tried and, and, and crucified. Um, Basically, what we have seen in the Gospel of John, John uh, made it very clear in the first 12 chapters that the Jews uh, rejected Jesus. Uh, They didn't want anything to do with Jesus, and so now he, 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 he turned his attention to those who received him. And he retreated with his disciples to the privacy of this upper room somewhere in Jerusalem where he could spend some time preparing them for what was about to come. And so this was essentially, this upper room discourse, uh, a kind of a farewell address to his disciples before he was arrested and tried and crucified. Now, when we, when we think of the upper room, we typically think of what event, what one thing. We think about the Lord's Supper, right? In fact, chapter 13 in my Bible starts with the Lord's Supper. But interestingly, John never talks about the Lord's Supper, per se, as we understand it, where Jesus took the Jewish Passover meal and transformed it into the Christian ordinance of communion. John's the only one uh, who doesn't include uh, the Lord's Supper in his account of what transpired in the upper room, uh, but, but he did something that none of the other gospel writers did, and that was he provided a detailed record of the instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples in the upper room. And so all of this stuff, well, I should say most of this stuff that we're going to see in chapters 13 to 17 is original to John. It's the only place we can learn about it is in the gospel of John. You can't parallel back and forth with the other gospels. And so, so far we've seen in chapter 13 how Jesus began his time with the disciples by confronting their selfish, prideful, jockeying for position. Remember, they were like arguing amongst themselves as they would travel along, who was the greatest among them. And then they, one of the, a couple of disciples even asked, hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into the kingdom? So they were all jockeying for position, thinking he was going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and reign, and they wanted to be part of the action. 
And so he had to deal with that attitude. And so he, he did that by humbly and selflessly getting up from the table and taking a towel and a basin and washing their feet. And, and that really kind of shut that whole prideful uh, tit-for-tat, king-of-the-hill mentality down like that. I mean, they felt like that big, right? As they were bickering among themselves, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought, here comes Jesus, the the God of the universe, lowly, humble, comes and washes their feet, and they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, right? That they should be washing his feet, and now he's washing their feet. And so he dealt with that very effectively at the beginning. And then secondly, what we saw was how Jesus exposed Judas as the traitor that he had been talking about, he'd been saying, hey, one of you guys is a traitor, one of you guys is a Benedict Arnold, one of you guys is going to betray me, uh, and they were all like, well, I don't know what he's talking about. And so finally, uh, he was in a perfect position that night in the upper room to, to reveal who that guy was, um, and, and it was Judas. And even then, the disciples still didn't make the connection that it was Judas um, that was going to betray him in just a matter of hours. Uh, if you remember, he left and they thought that he had gone out to run some errand because he was the guy that held the money, right? And that Jesus had sent him off on some errand. So they still didn't think anything was up with Judas. Um, nevertheless, I would say this, that the moment that Judas left, verse 30, it says, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night Therefore, when he had gone out, just that whole idea of him leaving, I, I guarantee the atmosphere in that upper room must have changed dramatically. I mean, basically, the devil just left, right? The devil just walked out the door. Not that he was, uh, Judas was the devil incarnate. He wasn't, but he was definitely being inspired, motivated by the devil. And so it's like Judas left, the devil left, right? And, and so now Jesus was able to talk more freely and, and openly and intimately with his true disciples, because everyone else left there was truly saved. And so Jesus' final charge to these 11 guys who would carry on his work after he, after he returned to heaven included uh, instruction, it included promises, it included uh, warnings, it included commands. And he begins here uh, in verse 31 through 38 by emphasizing the premier mark of a true disciple. Namely, sincere, selfless, sacrificial love for other disciples, other Christians. And I think verses 34 and 35 are really the heart of this passage. And that's why I'm I'm choosing to emphasize these two verses. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, that... Those two verses are kind of sandwiched um, between two other sections that I've just chosen to call God's exaltation, uh, verses 31 through 33, and then Peter's humiliation in verses 36 through 38, and we're just going to call that center section Christ's injunction or command or instruction. So let's just follow that little outline this morning as we go through this text. First of all, let's see God's exaltation, verse 31 and 32, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Anybody want to take a guess what the point of those two verses is? Maybe something about God being glorified, right? And, and, and God glorifying Christ. 
the word glory or, or glorified, glorified used five times in these two verses. And so Jesus knew that Judas's betrayal would set in motion this, this extraordinary chain of events that would include his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, and ultimately uh, the redemption of mankind, which, which would all bring God what? Glory. And so notice he calls himself here, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now is, now is the Son of Man glorified. He's talking about himself. This was a messianic title uh, drawn from the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. This was a title for uh, the Messiah, and so Jesus would use it of himself. Others would use it of him. Uh, this is the last time he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Back in chapter 12, verse 23, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, it's time. This is going down. Uh, why I came here to earth, uh, it, it's about to happen. And so um, Jesus knew that what was about to happen might, not might, would appear to his disciples as a shameful, disastrous defeat, not just for Jesus, but for all of them. And so he wanted them to know that, that, that through it all, that he was glorifying God. And as a result, God would glorify him. And so we, we know that Jesus' death and resurrection glorified and magnified God unlike anything ever had or ever will. I mean, you want to see God in all of his glory, look at the cross and look at the tomb. That's God at his best. I mean, all of God's glorious attributes were, were, were put on display when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead. I mean, we're talking about God's holiness. We're talking about God's wrath. We're talking about God's justice. We're talking about God's grace. We're talking about God's mercy. We're talking about God's love. We're talking about God's faithfulness. We're talking about God's power. I mean, they all showed up at the cross and the tomb, right? I mean, he just showed off. He, God was showing off, right, through the cross and through the tomb. And, and after Jesus died and, and, and rose again, there was this longing in his heart, uh, even then, he was longing even then, to, to return to the glory that he once had before he came to earth in the form of a man. Uh, notice chapter 17, just jump ahead a page or two, uh, in the high priestly prayer, which is kind of the crescendo of this upper room discourse, notice what he prays. Um, here at the beginning, he says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And, and I think what Jesus was saying is, is, hey, I know what glorifying you is going to look like. And that's me dying, on a, hanging on a cross and rising from the dead. So go for it, God. Glorify yourself through me so that I can glorify you. Look at verse for I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. By the way, that's how all of us glorify God, right? Is just, just by doing what he wants us to do. We should wake up every morning and say, okay, God, I know why I'm here on this earth. It's to glorify you. You show me what will glorify you and I'll do it. Um, so he says, listen, I, I glorified you. I've accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And we know that's exactly what, what God did. God the Father answered his son's prayer, right? This high priestly prayer, Jesus answered, or God answered that by glorifying his son, 
by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand and giving him the name that is above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Now the problem with all that, though, Jesus knew that him being glorified, um, i.e. going back to heaven, would require him to be separated from his followers here on earth. And so he wanted to comfort them. He wanted to console them. And so notice just the tender way he talks to them in verse 33. He says, little children, which, by the way, is the only time he ever addressed the disciples this way, in this gospel anyway. Um, this is a, obviously a, a term of endearment. He's just, he's just, it's really a precious, tender way he's talking to them. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. It's almost like he's having a, little, he's having a conversation, like a, a, a parent having a conversation with a little kid, Right? that doesn't want mommy and daddy to leave, right? And they have to kind of get down and take the little face in their hands and say, hey, listen, buddy, we'll be back. Don't worry about it, all right? We're going to come home, and, and you're going to be fine, and, right? and you're trying to comfort and console that little kid uh, to, to understand, hey, we're leaving, but, but, but there's no need for you to be afraid. Uh, there's no need for you to panic, right? Everything's going to be okay. And, and so uh, he, he's doing that here, and he'd already told the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, that he was going away and they couldn't come with him. Go back to John chapter 7. This is really important to see the the contrast here between what he told unbelievers and what he was telling his disciples. John chapter 7, verse 33, he says, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. In other words, I'm going back to heaven to be with the Father. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now, that didn't sound so bad. Well, notice what he says in John 8. He, he, he ratchets, up a, uh, ratchets it up a notch here. John chapter 8, verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself. They were thinking, is he going to commit suicide? Um, uh, and he says, where I'm, because he's saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so he basically said, listen, I'm going somewhere where you can't come. I'm going to heaven, and the reason why you can't come with me to heaven is because you are going to die in your sins and you're going to end up in hell. That's basically what he was saying. I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. And, 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 and it's because you don't believe. You won't repent of your sin. But notice here in John 13, it's a little different for those who've received him. Not a little different, it's a lot different. Uh, it sounds the same at first, but this, this, this separation, right, um, it would only be temporary. Why? Because he was going to come back and get them. Notice, even in verse 36, he says to Peter, Hey, Peter, where I go, you cannot follow me. What? Now, but you will follow me later. Why was he saying that to Peter? Because Peter was a true believer, right? Uh, he was a true follower of Christ. And so he said, Hey, Peter, not right now, but you will later. Um, but then notice 
chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He had never said that to the unbelieving Jews, but he was saying that to his disciples, to true believers. Well, more about that later. Lord willing, next week we'll get into that classic text there in John 14. But, but obviously this was a painful, um, frightening time for the disciples uh, to hear that, that he was going somewhere that they weren't, able to, they weren't going to be able to go because they'd been with the guy for three years. They kind of got a little attached to him, wouldn't you say? Right? They loved him. They were completely dependent upon him for everything. And so Jesus knew they needed a word of consolation uh, and maybe even a word of exhortation about how to act while they were waiting for his return. And, and so what he said in the verses to follow, are the, really the, the heart here of this text, verses 34 and 35, I think were, was, was intended as the only way for them to stay united through, through all the, the chaos that was about to ensue. And there was going to be a ton of chaos. And so you need to love each other is what he's getting at. And, and I think it was also the way that they could make the greatest impact on, on the world that he had left them, he was leaving them there to reach, right? While they were waiting for him to come, he said, occupy while, you know, while, until I come, right? Well, what's the best way uh, to make the biggest impact uh, on the unsaved world? It's, it's by what? Loving each other. And so we go from God's exaltation to Christ's injunction here in verses 34 and 35. Notice he says, a new commandment I give to you, by the way, it seemed like this dire situation of him leaving, right, um, required something extra special. So he's going to give them a new commandment, something that had never been given before, apparently, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. another again, uh, this, this very special occasion, very unique, never happened before situation required or, or, or lend itself to a, a never before command, right? Um, now, what interested me the most as I was studying this text was this phrase, a new commandment I give to you. And I, and I was asking myself, well, what, what's so new about this commandment? Because it sounds very familiar. Um, and I think it's not, not just us, but I, thought, I think it would sound very familiar to them as well because they had grown up studying the, the Old Testament, right? And, and these are concepts, ideas that were clearly presented in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so we're commanded in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were commanded to love God right, with everything in them. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any crudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And of course, so God told them, hey, you need to love me and you need to love your neighbor. And Jesus brought these commands together. If you remember when he was asked 
In Matthew chapter 22, what is the greatest commandment of the law or in the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, you can, you can boil down everything I ever commanded you to do uh, into two simple commands, love me and love your neighbor. And if you love me, and if you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit all the sins, right, that the Ten Commandments were designed to, to protect you from, right? Really, the Ten Commandments are just rules for love, right? The first half is how you love God, making sure you're loving God, so don't, don't have any other gods before him, don't use the Lord's name in vain, right? Uh, those, all those have to do with loving God, and then everything else is about loving your neighbor, right? Um, honoring your father and mother, not committing adultery, not stealing, um, not coveting, all those things is all about your neighbor, so, so he says, hey, everything in the Ten Commandments can be boiled down to love me and love your neighbor. So this sounds very similar, right? Uh, it doesn't sound very new. Well, I think what made this commandment new is he was telling them something that he had never told them before. Uh, he, he was putting a, a different spin, if you will, on, this, on the love commands, Okay? Rather than telling them to love God or to love their neighbor as themselves, Jesus told them to love who? Each other, right? Not, not, I'm not talking about neighbors anymore. I'm not talking about your enemies anymore. I'm talking about the guy sitting across the table right now. You need to love each other, right? Not as yourself, but as what? As I have loved you. That was a game changer, right? Because while it was difficult to love your neighbor as yourself, we all know we love ourselves, and so, hey, show the same love to others as you, as you do to yourself. Yeah, we can, we can relate to that and maybe make some kind of connection and might be able to do that. But uh, loving others like Jesus loved us? Now, that's, that's out of my league, okay? That's above my pay grade. I can't, I can't do that, Right? And so there was a freshness, there was kind of a new take here on the, on the Old Testament commands to love. And, and, and so Jesus was requiring more than just some general love for others. This was a special love for fellow believers. And, and, and Jesus showed us what this special love looks like for our brothers and sisters in Christ by washing the disciples' feet. That was a, 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 the place he started. Hey, this is the way you need to you know, do. He didn't say, now go and do to me. I wash your feet, you wash my feet. He said, no, I want you to wash what? One another's feet. And then, of course, he ultimately displayed or modeled this kind of love by sacrificing his life for us on the cross. And so, so through his humble, selfless, sacrificial death, Jesus set the supreme standard for the love that we're uh, to show to one another for the way that we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, a couple of verses that talk about this, just in and around this verse, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, knowing that he was going to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, look at chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So he's kind of uh, repeating himself now. What does that look like, Jesus? Well, verse 13, greater love has no man than this, than one, what? Lay down his life for his friends. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one 
another. And then, of course, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul got into the action here about loving the way God loves. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And then we know Ephesians 5.25 for husbands, right? Husbands, love your wives just as, what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Some of you who aren't husbands because you're either wives or you're not married, every time you read that verse, you might be like, man, I'm glad I'm not a husband because that, that's just like impossible. How in the world are you supposed to love someone, right, the way Jesus loved you? Well, guess what? That principle, that command doesn't just apply to husbands because Jesus basically gave that same command to every believer that all of us are supposed to be able to love each other, other believers, like he loved us and gave himself up for us. One commentator said this, the the command is new in that it is a special love for other believers based on the sacrificial love of Jesus. I like that. It's a special love for other believers based on the sacrificial love of Jesus. And, 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 and by the way, John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote three other letters, right? First, second, and third John. And, and based on what he writes um, in, in, in first, first, second, and third John, he was taking some notes that night in the upper room. I, mean, I don't know if he had his legal pad out or his iPad out or what he had, but he was taking some notes, if anything, mental notes, because just check it out in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Tell me if this doesn't sound like that he'd been around Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 16, we know this by we lo- know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And of course, the classic verse, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he, what? First loved us. Some of you might be sitting there going, whoa, this is like impossible. This is, this is, this is not um, doable here. Well, guess what? If you're not a Christian, you're right, okay? Because this is not natural. This is not normal. This is not anything that we can do in our own strength because none of us love this way. Um, but if you're a Christian, right, it's possible, um, the point I'm trying to make here is that, listen, if, if, if you have never experienced the transforming power of God's love in your own life, you cannot offer this love and extend this love to, to anyone else. In other words, you have to be saved, and you have to have the Spirit of God in you because it says in Romans chapter 5, we, we saw this a couple weeks ago, well, I guess we read it just last week, Romans chapter 5, um, verse 5 that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, if, you don't, if you're not a, a Christian, right, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have the constant pouring out of God's love into your life so that it, you can be a conduit to, to pass that love on to other people, right? 
um, that we know that love is a fruit of the who? Spirit, first thing. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And so if you're sitting there going, whoa, I'm just, this is beyond me, then maybe you need to ask yourself, um, am I truly a Christian, right? Um, because you, you can't do this if, if you're not. Well, notice how he goes on here in verse 35 to talk about the evangelistic power or impact of Christians loving each other. Verse 35, he says, by this, by what? When you love one another, even as I've loved you, right? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Listen, there's no greater way to let the world know that you're a Christian than to sincerely and fervently love other Christians. The Bible on your desk might be cool. The bumper sticker on the back of your car might be neat. Right, that, 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 that doormat you got in front of your house is really sweet and awesome. And yeah, but you know what? The ultimate way that, that people are going to know you're a Christian if you love other Christians. Again, why? Because if you're not a Christian, right, you can't love other Christians. I don't think there's any greater impact that we can make on the world than by loving our fellow church members. How's that for getting practical? Like loving the people sitting next to you and, 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 and across the aisle from you. And, 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 and listen, let's just be honest. Okay, we, we typically, as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, not necessarily Lakeside Bible Church, but the church of Jesus Christ, we stink at this. We, we've probably ruined our testimony as the church of Jesus Christ more by the lack of love Right, that we show to one another. You say, well, why are we blowing our testimony? It's not because you're out drinking on the weekends and partying and getting divorced and all that kind of stuff. That, that's definitely tarnishing the reputation of Christ. But maybe the biggest way that we're biffing it when it comes to, to being a testimony for Christ is, is what's not happening here. Or what is happening here, it's the gossiping, it's the slandering, it's the bickering, it's the arguing, it's the church splitting. It's all that stuff, right, that just goes on. I mean, we're just... We, we, I mean, you, if you've been in the church of Jesus Christ for any length of time, right, you know. If it hasn't happened in the church you've been in, you've heard stories from other people of, of, these, of these train wrecks, right, that, that the body of Christ has. And, and it's because people don't know how to love each other. And so the watching world looks in our windows, if you will, and they're like, seriously? I mean, that's like a reality show, man. That's a joke. That's like watching... You know, world professional wrestling, it's such a, it's a show. It's not real, it's, right? And they just kind of blow us off as irrelevant. Like, hey, listen, I got enough chaos in my life as it is. Why would I want to add that Christian chaos, right, to my life? I don't need it. It's ridiculous. Someone said this, the measure in which Christian people fail in love to each other is the measure, is the measure in which the world does not believe in them or their Christianity. I don't know uh, if you ever heard that old folk song. Um, we sang it at all the camps I grew up at. They will know we are Christians by our love. By... Anybody else know that song? Yeah, I mean, kind of a folksy little tune. I, I really didn't like it, but it's stuck in my head forever, okay? Um, I'll never forget it, and, and I'm glad because that's true. That's, it, was, it was straight from this text. They will know we are Christians by our love. And again, not our love for them, 
so much, but our love for what? One another. They, they, they look in the windows and go, how, could, how does that group of people that are so different, I mean, they come from all sorts of different backgrounds, they're so diverse, and yet they like get along. Like they, they seem to have something in common that they just go, goes past all the, 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 the stereotypes and the color and the nationalities and the, the pay, you know, the, the salaries and, and, and the subdivisions and the cars they drive. It doesn't matter why. What is it? And they just love each other. Well, let's look quickly at Peter's humiliation here. This is kind of a sermon in itself, but um, I think we're familiar with this account Verses 36 and 37, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Again, you got to love Peter, okay? And, and, and it's easy to pick on Peter, right? Because we're all like Peter. Um, we, 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 I mean, I don't know. I can relate to Peter, right? You have all these um, uh, grandiose ideas and I'm going to do this for the Lord and I'm going to do this for the Lord and we get out there and we just flatten her face, Right? And, and I'm just thankful that by the grace of God, the scriptures, the canon is closed, and, and, and my sins and failures are not ever going to be recorded in the scriptures like Peter's were. I mean, you can be thankful for that, right? But I think they were recorded by the Spirit of God because we can all relate to Peter. And, um, and so here, here's Peter, and, and, and Peter's still back in the previous conversation, Right? It's almost like he didn't even hear this thing about loving each other. He's like, hey, Jesus, I don't really care about loving each other. I love you, and I want to be with you. And where are you going? Because I want to come. And Jesus says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later, which I think was a reference to his future martyrdom, that he was going to die for the cause of Christ. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. I mean, this is classic, right? Impatient, um, impetuous, presumptuous Peter, right? Um, uh, again, I, I, whenever I <laughs> think about impatience, I think about our little, our little girl, Hannah. She, I can talk about her because she's on her way to Florida. She's not knowing I'm talking about her. But when she was little, like three years old or so, I think, and we were out in the, in the driveway, and, and I was uh, playing basketball in this little hoop with Zach, and, and, and we were shooting baskets and having fun. And then Hannah comes out with a little bike. She goes, Daddy, take me on a bike ride. I want to go on a bike ride. I'm like, okay, little girl, you got to wait, okay? Just wait for Daddy to be done playing, playing basketball. And so she, she didn't want to hear that. So like every minute, she'd come back, Daddy, Take me on a bike ride. I want to go for a bike ride right now. I'm sorry, honey. You're going to have to wait. And then she kept coming back. And finally, I got frustrated with her. I said, Hannah, you've got to learn to be patient. And she looked right back up at me and she said, Daddy, I don't want to be patient. <laughs> and I just had to laugh because I'm like, that's me, right? I mean, that's what the way we look up to God and like we're waiting on God. And so we're like, Daddy, I don't want to be patient. I want to know now, I want to go now, I want to have it now, I want to... So, anyway, um, that's Peter, right? And so, he, he says, Lord, I, I, why can't I go right now? And he insisted that, hey, wherever you're going, I can hang. Trust me, I can hang. I'm ready to die for you. The other gospel writers say that other things he said around this, um, Matthew 26 
Peter said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Don't ever say never, right? Um, I would never do that. That's a dangerous statement. Mark 14, 31. Even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. So this just shows Peter, uh, even though oftentimes he would head out in the wrong direction, all the other disciples were following him because he was such a strong, compelling leader. They're all going off the cliff with him, right? Hey, yeah, that's true. Oh, we're, yeah, we, you, you say it, Peter, you go. Luke 22, but he said, Lord, with you, I'm ready to both go to prison and to death. Now, of course, these are all well-intentioned statements, but what do they reveal about Peter? One word starts with P, ends with ride. Pride. He was prideful. He was overconfident. He was self-reliant. He, he thought too highly of himself. The Bible says don't think too highly of yourself, right? If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And he didn't think highly enough of the power of Satan that was at work. He, he was oblivious to the spiritual warfare that was going down that night in that upper room. And it was going to be happening in that garden in just a, a, an hour or so. And that's why Jesus said, hey, Satan, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, like wheat. Man, I'm praying for you. <laughs> and I've prayed for you that you're going to you're going to come through this thing. So here's Jesus' answer, verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. In other words, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you're going to have denied me three times. You're, you're, you're telling me you're willing to die for me, but you're going to be unwilling to even admit that you know me. I think that's what happens when we arrogantly try to follow the Lord in our own strength. He has to put us in our place. That ever happened to any of you? <laughs> it's happened to me, one honest man. <laughs> yeah. And so Jesus' prediction here, I think, probably completely took Peter by surprise and, 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 and probably shocked the rest of the disciples because here's their fearless leader. And, and one commentator mentioned this, and I hadn't thought about this, but I think it's an interesting thought, that because they were still trying to figure out who the guy was, which one of them was going to betray him, maybe they thought, I wonder if it's Peter. Based on what Jesus just said, maybe it's Peter. Well, evidently, Christ's words humbled and subdued Peter because we don't hear from the guy until chapter 18, which is rare for Peter, right? With all this talk time in the upper room, you would have thought he would be asking some questions, making some comments, right? Jesus just shut him down, and, uh, and, and, and he had nothing to say because he knew that um, he had no place, no business talking at that point. Well, the point here this morning is just that, that the trademark of a true Christian is love for other Christians. You know, I was thinking about this in light of our church and, and how we can have the most powerful, effective impact on this community. We talk a lot about that, don't we? 
how we can evangelize our community, how we can evangelize our home, our neighborhood, our workplaces, our classes, our classrooms, our schools. Um, But based on what Jesus said here in John chapter 13, the effectiveness of our witness as a church is not measured by how faithfully and boldly we proclaim the truth. We make a big deal about that, don't we? About proclaiming the truth. But that's not ultimately how we'll be effective. It's not creatively coming up with all these great ideas of how to connect with the community and reach out to the community. I mean, that could be effective, but that's not most effective. What's most effective? According to what Jesus is saying is is what's most effective, the most effective thing we can do, the starting point for evangelism is how sincerely and fervently we love each other. In other words, evangelism starts within the four walls of this church by us learning to love each other genuinely, sincerely, and fervently. Dr. R. Kent Hughes said this, possibly the greatest gift that we as the body of Christ can give the world is to love each other. If we do that, he says, those on the outside will desire to learn more about the gift of gifts, the King of Kings himself. And so the question I think we need to ask ourselves this morning as we, as we depart here is what, what kind of things might unsaved people see us doing that could identify us as, identify us as Christians? I mean, what are some things that we, that we could say or do to one another, for one another, that will set us apart and, and will catch the, the, the watching world's attention? What are, what are some practical ways that you can show love to another Christian in your home, at your work, in this congregation, right? Through your words or through your actions. Maybe it would just be an encouraging word, a simple phone call to just say, hey, you know what? I just want you to know I love you and, 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 and I care about you. I'm so thankful for you. Maybe a little note, right, that you could write this week to somebody just expressing your love. Maybe it's some act of service, Something as simple as making a meal and you, 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 show, you call somebody and say, hey, I'm bringing over supper tonight. Well, why? I'm not pregnant. I didn't have a baby. You know, I'm not sick. Well, why, why? I thought only pregnant ladies or, you know, uh, sick people get, you know, uh, I didn't just come home from surgery. Well, just because I love you. Just because. I love you. Simple things like that, right? When a family goes down, right, they have a difficult time and we're just like on it, right? It's just like we just, it's just like, we're just on it. We're loving them through that, whatever it is. Whatever crisis, we're loving them through it. It's that kind of stuff. It might be even something as simple as a holy kiss. I got one just a few minutes ago from my brother Curtis that I've always been scared to tell him, hey, don't kiss me, dude, because I think he could beat me up. So if he's wanting to give me a holy kiss, I'm going to take it and thank him for it, right? But he does. He, he's a tender man, and he comes and he gives me a kiss on my cheek. And the Bible, there's something in the Bible about that, if I remember right. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, I think it was appropriate that it was men with men and women with women. I'm glad I don't live in Russia because they apparently do it on the lips, men with men. I'm like, okay, no thanks. But seriously, <laughs> that's one reason why I never got on a mission trip to Russia because, you know, I'll go anywhere else because they ain't kissing on the lips anywhere but Russia. So I'm staying away. I'm steering clear from Russia. Um, 
that's just the way they show, but seriously, that's the way they show love, genuine, sincere. It's not impure, not unholy. It's very genuine, sincere. It's just the way that they're trying to show, live out the scriptures, to show love for one another. Let me close with this statement from one commentator. He said it well. A loving community is the visible authentication of the gospel. Francis Saver said this, love is the final apologetic. You can argue with people to your blue in the face about that there's a God, that the Bible is his word, that they need to repent and believe. The final apologetic is love for your brother or sister in Christ. If, if God's going to use anything to, to break their hard heart, to soften their hard heart, it's going to be the way you love other Christians. Tertullian, who was the church father back in AD 155, he reported that in, in, in the end of the second century, the comment of the pagans was, behold how they love each other. The, the pagans of the day were looking in on the Christians going, this is, they, they, I can't believe how much they love each other and how they're ready to die for each other. And this commentator says this, their mutual love was the magnet which drew the pagan multitudes to Christ. Listen, we could have a magnetic effect in this community, right? If we simply love each other, like truly love each other and care about one another. And it will draw people to Christ. Doesn't mean we don't have to go out and use words and share the gospel and Talk about God, man, Jesus, you, and all those kind of things. Build relationships. We need to do all that stuff. But it starts by us loving each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the potential that you have placed in this body, in this church. If we would learn to just simply learn to love each other as you have loved us. And we just confess, Lord, that's just beyond us. It is above our pay grade because that's not what we normally do. But we know that with Christ in us, and your spirit in us, Lord, that we can apparently do that because you, you never would command us to do something that you also wouldn't give us the power to do. So, Lord, help us to become a loving, a more loving church, that we would excel still more. Thank you for the love that's already here, that I feel uh, from this body. And I know that, uh, that a lot of people in this body feel like this is a very loving church. Thank you for that. But, Lord, we want to excel still more in our love for one another. And so we ask you to help us just be an incredible, powerful magnet for the gospel because of the way we care and love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.